production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Commonly known as the Queen of Common Sense, Maggie Dent has become one of Australia's favourite parenting authors and educators, sharing her wisdom on girls and boys in their early years and adolescence. Maggie's experience includes educating, counselling and working in palliative care and suicide prevention. She teaches us that nurturing children's inner worlds can be woven into the fabric of our days and that nurturing ourselves is also good for our youth and everyone else in our lives. Our candid and heartwarming conversation covers how to build resilience and self-esteem in our children, saving our kids from our chaotic world and the importance of not passing on our wounds to the ones we love. Can we just let children be children? Can we not get frustrated when they dawdle from the car to the house and it takes 20 minutes? Can we just sit on the step and just embrace that moment? Do they have to do that many extracurricular activities? Sometimes it's too much. Sometimes less equals more being. And it's the being in the full presence of ourselves and our children that is seriously the greatest gift we can give them. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Maggie is the author of many books, including Girlhood, Parental as Anything, and Mothering Our Boys. In its essence, this conversation is about healthy, common-sense raising of children in order to strengthen families and communities. I greatly appreciate Maggie's openness and perspective. My hope is that this exchange will add to your toolbox of parenting wisdom and give you the knowledge you need to walk away with and put immediately into practice. Maggie Dent, I've had a lot of people on this podcast, but when I mentioned your name, there was just roars and cheers of excitement from everyone from the workplace to my personal friends because I've never spoken to someone about this topic of children and raising children just as a whole episode. But as we do, Maggie, we like to start at the beginning and I want to talk a bit about your upbringing because you have had a very interesting journey yourself and your work before you went into writing books and podcasting. Ah, Sarah, what a ride. And I think as a little girl, I was the fifth of six born on a farm in the wheat belt in Western Australia. And I had two older brothers who were very, shall we say, challenging and did lots of things that 
certainly gave me a sense of resilience. I can remember once they tied me on a tree in the bush and left me there. <laughs> and another time they squeezed me in between wool bales and I couldn't get out because I was kind of wedged and it took hours. I mean, now look back at it, we had an awful lot of fun too, playing footy and cricket and building cubbies and shooting parrots. So, And then amongst that, um, the challenge for me as a little girl because my two love languages are quality time and safe touch. And my mum was just not... She was in a kind of aloof and distant mum, so I was so desperately feeling unloved as a child. But my dad was this amazing humanitarian who was funny and wise and he was deeply in love with nature, animals. He was an agronomist, so you can imagine how much he loved farming. So I spent hours and hours with my dad and my younger brother particularly, who's a lamb, which is really good because I learned that boys can be tender and gentle and thoughtful mm. and not just big. Blah, 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 blah. And I think that journey, um, and we didn't have TV, so I read madly and I was writing really early, Sarah. I remember I wrote poetry as seven or eight-year-olds and I, I still remember once I wrote a poem about maggots, <laughs> which I read out in class. And we had a relief teacher that day who was only quite new and she wasn't a country person <laughs> and she fainted. <laughs> So, um, That's to show the greatness of your writing at such oh, a young age, descriptive. Go, right? I love learning. I love school. And then I went to uni and a little bit of a sidetrack and then I ended up becoming a teacher. And I think that's where I found, I just loved it. I loved working in classrooms with kids. I loved teenagers who were a bit tricky and unpredictable. I loved the boys who used to fart in class and walk around going, I'd say, why are you walking? What's going on? I don't know, miss. And I think that's where that, I, I want to create an environment that helps them to succeed in classrooms, even if they're barely literate in a high school English class. And then after the intensive breeding program with four sons, in that time, I just did little things around the edges, which did amount to quite a bit. I became a bereavement coordinator in yes. palliative care in Albany in Western Australia. I learned to be kind of like a death doula worked in suicide prevention and did a little stint on ABC radio, which is so funny because it was way back in the 80s. And then when I went back teaching full-time, I just had that restlessness inside me that I was supposed to be doing something else that, you know, troubled kids came to me. They found me even if I didn't teach them. And I thought, no, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I did a post-grad diploma in counselling and therapy and stepped out of the classroom in 1998 counselling, training and education and that gave me the journey to hear the stories of troubled children from as young as four and five right through to adults who had a troubled child inside them and and then I burned out because of course I just give too much <laughs> and then I thought no I'll just change my training manual into a book mm. and so in 2003 I wrote my first book Saving Our Children from Our Chaotic World Teaching Children the Magic of Silence and Stillness and then I didn't stop and accidentally have written nine major books and here I am. <laughs> and as so loved by so many people. I want to ask you, Maggie, we have to circle back because it's, you know, my area of interest and you working on the front line of palliative care. I mean, how was that and what did you learn? Oh, my goodness. If you want to know what real resilience is, share that journey with people. To be really honest, Sarah, it's probably, I think, some of the best work I've ever done in my life. And I ended up kind of from there working in the funeral industry, which was also equally as 
oh, it's profound. Mm. Everyone thinks, oh, that's awful, it's horrible. But in amongst the darkest of moments, you know, that's where you can support people the most. And yeah, really, there's just so much I learned in that space that I was able to transfer because we're all grieving at some point. We've all lost something, you know, Mm. and we don't acknowledge it well enough and we don't do death very well. We're still quite death phobic. And I think, yeah, every now and then I'll run into someone whose grandfather's funeral I did or the baby ones. Oh, man, they nearly ripped my head out. But I have this crazy kind of ability and I wonder if it's my childhood that the tougher the emotional trauma at the moment, the calmer I become. Yeah. And that's what you need. You don't need someone to fix you. You don't need someone to tell you what to do. You just need someone to hold that space so you can find your way through it to navigate it in a way that works for you. When you were dealing with palliative care, I wonder, did you deal with a lot of children and how did they deal with the idea of the fact that they were dying? Oh, my goodness. It's one of the things I guess I discovered. The more I did more kind of research and and then look back at my experiences, I realise how wise our children are. They're so much wiser than we give them credit for. We had this wonderful 10-year-old boy who had a brain tumour and um, he spent like respite in with us every now and then a couple of weeks at a time. And he was this unbelievably wise soul that he would have these deep conversations about life. He was worried about his parents after he would die. They actually separated. So he... um, he felt that his mum wouldn't have the support that dad had and, and it was just really deep. But, you know, every now and then he would come up with a conversation that would make everybody there laugh, right? He was the youngest one there. And he would have the grown-ups who were living with that life-limiting journey, he would have them laughing with mm-hmm. joy. There was this experience that happened with him, and I know it's happened with a number of other children. As they get really close to death, they start drawing rainbows or butterflies or sky pictures. And I went in one morning and he was really unwell and he just asked me to hold his hand. And then he dug out the picture he'd drawn the afternoon before. And I can still see that rainbow in my mind. And the day that he left our world... I drove home and I had to pull over because, yeah, that one really hit me because I have a son the same age. Yeah. And I think it was a real blessing to be able to do that because I have never taken for granted uh, any one of the special lives that I have because we have no guarantee that we're going to live a long life. And the same when I worked in funerals, there were people who often would say to me, I thought we were going to have a lot more time. Mm. And I keep saying to people, you know, if you actually knew that your child was going to leave the earth in a week's time, what would you do? Yeah. And what would you say? Please do it today. Because it just changes everything. Mm. And I think I became a better human and a better mother and a better woman as a consequence of my journeys around death and dying in those four or five years. Why do you think they draw the butterflies and the rainbows when they're dying? I just think that we have different ways of communicating. And even when I was counselling, I usually started with children under eight, Mm. asking them to draw a picture of how they feel in their world right now. Because they can't always have words to say, you know, oh, I'm feeling parental abandonment because mum's brought home a new baby. 
or I'm feeling left out in my friendship group. They just say I feel yucky. So the the doorway into a, a child's truth is often through their play and their their art and what they avoid or what they're drawn towards. So once again, when you understand, they are always trying to communicate to us, even if they haven't got the concept. And that's what I felt was was happening in that space. Talking about death, I'm just thinking of my own daughter and how she is seven and she will start getting really scared and saying, I'm so scared of dying, mum. I'm so scared of dying. And I know that is something that a lot of parents have. And my son, he doesn't have the same fear. And I wonder, how do we talk to our children about death, the ones that are quite fearful of it? All right. When they're young, we just got to remember that that children are wired for metaphor yeah. and story. So what we can say is that when we die, it is just our body that stops working. But there's a very special part of us that does continue. And it's like when you love someone deeply, they live inside your heart. Mm. They never leave it. And if we want to externalise it, if children don't have a faith and there isn't a heaven, then is there a magic star in the sky? Is uh, Do they live up on the moon? We find another space for them mm. because children to them, that's where they are. What is challenging for children is when parents say, that's it, you're dead and basically you get cremated or the worms eat you and there's nothing beyond. So we create no hope Mm. and we all got to work it out for ourselves. what our experience of when this body stops, is there anything that continues from me? If not, then that's their reality. But we know for children, it's the same a little bit, you know, the metaphor of Christmas, Sarah, and Santa and Easter bunnies, I love them. And at some point in life, we're going to work out, oh, dang. But while it was a magical thing, which is childhood, yes, they're meant to feel these things are wonderful. And so it's a really big message I do in all my resilience um, seminars for parents is that please, um, you know, don't shield them from these things because a four and five-year-old handles death in a very different way to an eight to 14-year-old. Mm. And they need to know that their heart will hurt if we lose something we love rather than pull up next to a dead kangaroo carcass. We don't feel it in our heart because we didn't love the animal. Yeah. So it's one of the reasons I encourage families to get guinea pigs. And I know it sounds terrible, but get a guinea pig because the stroking builds the bond in the heart. And when the guinea pig dies and they don't live as long, so, you know, it's great. Yeah then they'll feel that and then they know that is normal when they lose something they love. And sometimes it's their favourite blanket. It's a special toy and we need to prepare them because grandparents are going to die. And so, again, it's that magical space. And what I find when children have agency and participate in the death of loved ones, like they draw those beautiful pictures And I remember I love them at funerals because they kind of normalise that life is actually continuing through these little ones, like Mm -hmm. this is kind of how life is. And I remember a little toddler about two and a half running down the chapel once and banging on his grandfather's casket going, my poppy's in here, (laughs) he's in here. And everyone just like tears of, tears of, you know, kind of joy because... He would be proud that his grandson has just thumped the coffin yeah. and said this is where he is, right? It, that's an interesting thing you bring up because I know for a lot of people, they don't want to bring their children to a funeral, mm-hmm. even if it was the child's grandparent. And I wonder 
from your experience, is there a right age to do that or it doesn't really matter? I would recommend from birth. Yeah. I seriously do. When we normalise that we... So there's three things about a funeral, Sarah, and I think people keep forgetting it. It's just the farewell part and they may see growing ups cry. Well, I want to normalise that growing ups, including dads and men, are supposed to cry when their heart hurts. Yeah. And there's three parts to a funeral and two of them are great and one is sad. And the sad is the goodbye of the physical body. But the two others are thanksgiving that we've had this person in or this animal in our life and, uh, you know, the gratitude that we have. They're two beautiful things. We're just so grateful they've been here. We're going to now celebrate the wonderful kind of essence of this human who has changed our world and we celebrate. So when I first started doing funerals back in the late 1980s, they were still pretty sombre. And I worked for a pretty innovative funeral director and he was very much about allowing the real to come out, laughter, funny songs. And I still remember one funeral of a kind of a, a friend of mine's husband who died suddenly. He was a really cheeky scouser from Liverpool. And he'd already said he wanted the laughing policeman as his going out song. So <laughs> can you imagine? Everyone just, because they knew him. Yeah. So when we actually choose a ceremony that captures the essence of a person, we don't have to make them a saint. So if they've got some bad habits, we might bring that up. And that makes people chuckle too. Mm. And then we give that opportunity really to go, you know, okay, so yeah, that, that feels right. I'm, I'm glad I've been a part of their life. I'm sad. But yeah, yeah, they did good. I took my kids to what we call in the Jewish religion a consecration. So a year after the person has died, we put up the tombstone yep. and it was of my great uncle and I brought both my kids. And they didn't really remember him, but they were having a field. It was the first time at a graveyard. And I remember as a child as well, just thinking, oh, this is the coolest place and going around and looking at the graves. And it was kind of a little bit scary, but it was also so cool. And they loved it. Yeah, because it's no concept. Yeah, they still remember it. Even though they were young, they had such a, a really nice time there. And we've got to remember that children, what we call puddle hop. So they'll be sad for a little, little bit of time. And then I'll just go back to their own whatever, imaginary child world, whereas growing up, we actually can't put it down. Yes. I can still remember it vividly coming back to me. I was driving a coach one day and, you know, I'm obviously behind the hearse and I had a mum in the back with a four-year-old son and dad was in the front and he had died by suicide. And the little boy was just sort of said, is that, so you got my daddy in that box? And I said, yeah, your daddy's in that beautiful casket in the hearse in front. So I'm just giving him the correct words. And he said, and then you're going to burn him up. And I said, yes, we cremate him and we're turning him into some ash and then mummy will work out somewhere special for that ash to go. And then he said, have you got any lollies in the car? <laughs> and the mum said, doesn't he love his father? I said, that's, that's it. He's just fact-finding, right? And I still remember one of my boys saying to me after my dad died, so mum, is I just want to know how long it takes him to get to heaven. Is it is it like past London? And I, and I went, um, not sure, love. I haven't been there, you know, like, and but is that sort of every now and then um, death is what we, we're terrified of it, really. 
at some level. Yes. Um, and I think one of my gifts in life, not only in that space, but it was in that window that I had a very close near-death experience. Really? Yeah, I had a um, lumps in my tubes and they wanted to know what it was. They did me a DNC and cleared it out. And 10 days later on Boxing Day, I started to hemorrhage. I ended up hemorrhaging severely and I'm the doctor misdiagnosed it and just thought it was a post-operative hemorrhage, yes. gave me some fluids and then left for the day to his winery. And I ended up pushing out clots like watermelons and vomiting for 16 hours. And then they finally thought, hang on a minute, this looks a bit hormonal. They rang the King Edward Women's Hospital in Perth and they said, sounds like, kind of like what can happen in a miscarriage. So I had a hormonal dysfunction and the body thought I'd had one, I hadn't. And they gave me just some progesterone. But by that stage... I was wrapped in foil. It was too late for surgery. My blood pressure was plummeting. And I did. I kind of went to a place where I said, this is too hard. I'm just I'm just going to go. And it felt like, it did for me, felt like the golden tunnel. I was just sliding into this beautiful space. And I do remember this in the midst of it going, I could just sense my three little boys. And I went, no, no way am I leaving them behind. And it was kind of like whether that's when they gave me the progesterone or... <laughs> I have no idea whether I could possibly influence that moment. But so from that moment, there was nothing. No pooey nappy could upset me. No fussy eating. No, I want a different colour cup. Even the teenage years, it was very different when you almost never had the opportunity to continue being the mum you wanted to be. Yeah, probably why I went on and had a fourth son. It's interesting, isn't it? I talk about it a lot in the podcast and we were talking about it on, you mentioned it before, I've spoken to a lot of palliative care workers and we don't know how long we're going to be here for. We must make every day as if it is our last. And I know there are a million quotes about it, but it's true. It's very true because why wouldn't you do what you wanted to do with your kids today that you're planning on doing in a couple of years' time. And and sometimes I think we take life very seriously when a lot of it is is not that serious. So there's a poem by Irma Bombeck and it's just one of the classics that when I was running women's retreats, I often used to use it because we're notoriously good at keeping the crystal for a special day, not using our good Mm. crockery. And keeping that candle, and she talks about the candle melting in your garage one day because you never used it. And I suddenly had that moment. It was when I was in palliative care as well. So I started teaching the just in case. So just in case, you know how we say, look, oh, we're not going to go camping until they're all out of nappies or we're not going to go and do that until they're a little bit easier to handle. And I just kept saying to people, just do it now just in case. So for my sons, I think I had three at university and one was still in high school and I thought the same thing. They're mad surfers. And I had planned one day to take them to North Shore in Hawaii and to see Pipeline. And and I did one night, I just woke up and thought, there's no guarantee, no guarantee. And I think I might have nearly maxed out my credit card. Fortunately, there were some really cheap Jetstar flights and I took them to Hawaii. And it was like, it took pressure off me mm. in a way because I'd done something. And I remember sitting down at a meal saying to them, oh, now, so this trip cancels out every bad moment I had as a mother. <laughs> Are we all right with that now? I'm, I'm woof, ticked. Yeah, they all laughed. I thought that was funny. And they even took me out for a Chinese and said, this cancels out everything we've done wrong. And I said, no way, you guys have a lot more work to do there. But that really was something that I could have felt okay about if I had died. 
Yes. Right? And I want people to recognise, if you could just, just in case, go and visit someone you plan to, but you're just putting it off. Don't put anything off, I really mm. argue. And I think we do that to ourselves because the to-do list we create for ourselves, particularly women, is, is unrealistic and unsustainable. And what it does, it turns us into being a human doing rather than a human being. Yes. And I think the beingness, which is exactly what I wrote about all those years ago, was can we just let children be children? Yeah, that's can it. Can we not get frustrated when they dawdle from the car to the house and it takes 20 minutes? Can we just sit on the step and just embrace that moment? Mm. Do they have to do that many extracurricular activities? Just why are you doing that to you and your children? Sometimes it's too much. It doesn't equal better. Sometimes mm. less equals more being and it's the being in the full presence of ourselves and our children that is seriously the greatest gift mm. that we can give them. And I am blessed now that I'm a nanny to seven precious little grandchildren. And I'd like to think there were times I still, and I'm going to say this, that I, it was very different when I was raising mine because we didn't have Instagram to compare everybody. We didn't also have much parenting books out there and um, you had to buy the book. You couldn't listen to it on audio while you were actually doing the dishes or running on the mm. tramp or, you know, doing your exercise. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There wasn't any multitasking. Um, and I think what it's done is that we're never fully in the moment. And I know mm. it sounds a bit zen-like, but at the end of the day, this is the only moment that really matters and how am I doing this moment? Not am I getting them ready for the next moment? Am I worrying that they'll get to university? Am I, and I think that's one of the things I've learned as a woman that the ego wants to continually have us outside of this existing moment. Mm. And sometimes I just sit and watch my grandies play. I don't have to participate. I don't have to ask endless questions. When they look at me, I might smile, but I'm actually fully present and they absolutely know it. Yes, which is the most important thing, isn't it? Yeah, you, it's not about what they have. It's what they feel us being. Yeah. And so it is, like I said, the greatest gift you can give your kids, the greatest present you can give is being present. Yeah, and I noticed it the other day with my daughter because I am obviously like you, I'm working very hard, I'm juggling a million different things and working late hours and she's such a sweet girl, my daughter. But the other day she said something to me that was very mean and, and she knew it was mean. And I'd given her this whole talk about the power of words the day before. <laughs> so she totally knew that what she was saying was not right. And I said to her, why did you say that? That's really, that's not nice. And it really upset me. Why did you say that? She's so smart. She looked at me and she said, because I just want your attention. Yep. My heart nearly broke. What she really means is connection. Yeah. And that's that's what we keep saying. That's attention-seeking behaviour. No, it's not. So I can't get it in a positive way. I am going to try a little harder in a yeah. way that you will pay attention. And she was right. She was right. And I was like, pens down. <laughs> Laptop away. You have my full attention. But that really, it really shocked me in a good way yeah. for me to say, wow. Sometimes you have to yeah. go around to understand what they really mean behind this and that. Yeah. She actually told yeah. me. That's why I talk a lot, Sarah, about micro-connections because we know quality time is a lovely thing, but really in, in reality with busy working parents, it's very difficult. 
But if you can imagine, they've got a little love cup that we can put little doses in all during the day, whether yeah. it's we already have something special in their lunchbox or we write something on their banana or we ruffle their hair or we wink at them a bit more or we act really silly or we do a bedtime ritual or you know what I mean? We yes. just do little micro doses all day. Then our children can still have a strong sense of being loved. Mm, but it's when beautiful. we feel we need to do quality time and the day disappears and then the week disappears and then suddenly you sit down guilty on Sunday wanting to play with them and they don't want to play with you. <laughs> that Then the guilt just gets in more and more enormous. But I keep saying, just do the micros. That's such do a good idea. Do the micro doses and yeah. they add up and the kids feel it. So she was really, her cup was a bit empty, mummy. She just yeah sort that one out. You mentioned something before, which I think a lot of parents struggle with, and it was the extracurricular activities. And I see with that, sometimes it's the parent that's trying to live vicariously through the child. So they might have liked dancing when they were young. And so next minute, their kid's dancing at every competition, and they're wanting their child to almost recreate that life that they didn't quite have. Yeah, the kids, that they do enjoy it. But I wonder, what is that limit between the joy that your child has or what you want to create as a parent. But a lot of the time, I don't think the parents may even realise that they're doing that. Parental expectation, it can be healthy. However, it can be really unhealthy. And when I was researching girlhood, I discovered some research of some significantly talented women who went on to Olympics or academia. And in the end, the obsession to be the best became unhealthy yes. and cause some significant physical and mental health issues. So again, we can give them opportunities. I think it's like, I want our children to know there's a smorgasbord of life mm. and there's heaps of things on that smorgasbord. But I think we need to tune into our children's natural strengths. Now you will know quite early with girls what their natural aptitudes and strengths are. I have a couple that are physically incredibly strong mm. and they climb monkey bars way ahead of a lot of other boys even. And so I've watched as that was something that went towards what they may do and they don't do too much because I could keep on saying it's it's again that same thing. High energy rooster children can do more extracurricular than the children who don't have the same amount of energy mm. and are our lambs. Doesn't mean you're failing. You're respecting what your child's innate gifts are. So being able to give them opportunities is a good thing. However, if it impacts the family in such a way that when you come in that door, often dark in winter, mm. hungry children, you are not going to be the parent you want to be. And then you're going to beat yourself up because you haven't really got time to create that beautiful meal that will obviously have broccoli in it. And the children are going to sit quietly and do their homework, not... And then the bedtime, beautiful bath time. Oh, my God, it's gone everywhere, hell in a handbag. So when that happens, I'm going to say this is a conversation for the whole family that this isn't, this isn't working for us all now because we're all pretty crabby. So how do you think we could fix this a bit? Or whoever the parents are go, okay, so this is too much. So we're going to trim it back a bit. I want you to work out which of your activities we could let go for this term or this semester or which couple. Yeah. Or which ones you love most. And then we'll do our best to make sure that happens. But this every every night of the week isn't good for us. And the stress means they don't sleep as well. They wake up crabby. They don't learn well at school. That's not what life's about. And I think we need to give them some choices in that journey and recognise again. Sometimes your kids will want to do something you're not in the least bit interested in. Mm. 
I mean, seriously, one of mine was a competitive swimmer, which meant it was a five oh, o'clock up every day, yeah. and that was a nightmare. <laughs> I accidentally got the time wrong one day and we ended up at the pool at 4.30, but that was another story. still <laughs> reminds me of that. And the same with surfing, you know, like before they got a licence so they could take them, my weekends were, again, really early driving around finding a way. Did I want to do that? No. But mm. you know what? There was something else in the adolescent window. I wanted them to experience something that gave them a spark in their eyes, spark in their heart. Mm. So this is that place that's a little bit different to are they doing something that I wish I had done more of. This is the place where it doesn't matter what it is, I see them shining so brightly afterwards. Mm. I know that's the activity I really have to prioritise in their life, even if it means giving up some of your own because – that's that natural transcendence. That's the place that as adults we keep looking for, don't we? But when we can't nurture an authentic spark and we're forcing our spark, you're right, that can, that can cause some challenges. I wanted to talk to you, Maggie, about how we deal with our children and them going to other houses and maybe the way that the other parents are parenting is not how we would parent. So say, for example, our child goes to a friend's house and next minute they come home, and I'm talking about younger children, not teenagers, they're not as cognizant to say yes, no for things, and they're given McDonald's as a meal for dinner, and that's not something that you would feed your child. Is there something you can do in that situation? Do you let it pass? Do you make sure they don't go to the friend's house anymore? (laughs) Or say, you know, in the same sense that the parent maybe is doing something that you would not do at your house. How do you deal with that? We choose carefully the people, our children, whose class they play at. Now, around the McDonald's one, I'm always looking at the 20% Sometimes our kids need to experience the 20% of food that's not nutritionally good for them, but it's part of just having some fun. I wouldn't bat an eye because obviously you're not going to go over there very often. The same as if they do fairy bread sandwiches just for afternoon tea because they've got kids playing. I wouldn't be worried about that one. What we actually really get worried about is, are they safe? I've already had a number of parents over the years who've contacted me with a child who's gone to the child up the street who was in their mum's first mummy group, so they've known them, you know, it's in the tribe, Mm. a seven-year-old coming home in a fetal position on mum and dad's bed, absolutely traumatised. And that is because that seven-year-old was able to be playing Grand Theft Auto 18+, plus, which has the rape and murder of women. Now, they're the boundaries I'm going to talk about clarifying. So if, when they go, can we make sure that either they have no access to devices that don't have enough. I would much prefer they don't have any access because you still don't know. Mm. We know that there are beheadings on kids' YouTube. So it actually would be great if a play doesn't engage anything where the digital highway can be accessed. That's a really important one. The second one is we actually really have to have conversations with our children about protective behaviours and what's safe because We've had a 500% increase on child-to-child sexual abuse because children have seen pornography or had pornographic acts done to them by older children. And that's almost like we have to actually talk to our children about if anybody touches you in your private parts, this is what we do. It's not okay. It's your body. Because some of the other stuff I'm hearing about is older siblings can do that to the child who's come to play. 
and threaten them with all sorts of things. So they're the things that probably wasn't as big a thing in the past because children weren't exposed to these things. They are the tough conversations you absolutely have to have. And if you're in that group, you would have all had them around coffee. You would have all had them around this. You would share these horror stories so that everyone's a little bit watching. And then going to that next place, any behaviour that isn't acceptable, swearing or hitting, you step up as the safe growing up. You're mm-hmm. the surrogate growing up safe person and your job is to make sure you continue to remind them of those things. Otherwise, you're not protecting them. Yes. You know, once again, no hitting, preferably try not to do it with, you know, sticking them in a naughty corner. But basically, you step up and go, no, we don't do that here. We don't say that here and we don't hit people here. There's not a problem with that. And they can yeah. go home and say, she said that, that other parents should be going, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> won't always be, but that's what we'd like it to be. I mean, it's, again, Sarah, common sense, but we have so many more concerns today about our children's safety because we're in a a digital landscape that has absolutely shattered the innocence of many children. Absolutely. When our child has a friend over, it happened once, I was in the car and I could hear one of the kids that one of my children had over, they were not being very nice to my child, they were saying things that were really mean. Yep. And I was thinking, how dare you? <laughs> and I think it was going over my child's head, yeah. but it certainly wasn't going over mine. Yeah. How should I have behaved in that instance? Oh, look, I would have definitely called that. Those sound like words that aren't very kind and aren't very respectful. Is that true? Yeah. Or are you just playing a game? Yeah. So in other words, I'm going to call the child to awareness that hang on a minute, there's a growing up watching me and I'm also going to throw it at them that, hang on a minute, I need to think about it, but I'm also not really being growled at. Did did you see the difference? Yes. And then we don't in our house use those sorts of mean words. Mm, And then that's given that child a message so that if you hear them again, Mm. remember I said to you, we don't use those here. They don't come into our house, but you are welcome, but not the mean words that come with you. Can I tell you something about, you know, children coming to your house to play? I had one little boy, sweet as... But he seemed to, every time he came to our house, he did a poo and he never flushed. And one day I thought, what's going on? Anyway, I went up and said to him, so Robbie, how come you don't flush after you do a poo? And he said, well, my mummy likes to look at my poo. And I said, well, I don't. So in our house, you can flush the poo. And he'd flush from then on. So sometimes we've got to recognise. Yes, that's hilarious. You know what I mean? What's the rules in that house coming to that house? There can be some grey area. Yes. We just kind of touched on bad words. I want to talk about bullies because I know that is a big thing for males, females, everyone. And I've always been taught that the way to handle a bully is to stand up to a bully. But I'd love to know from your experience, if our child is being bullied at any age, what are the best practices to do as the adult and also to give to the child? Okay, the very first thing is to be clarified that what is bullying compared to childhood nastiness. Yes. So we often call people names who upset us or annoy us and we do it really randomly. We don't have any plan around it. Our intent was just to stop the behaviour or just to discharge a bit of yuck. So bullying is an intentional plan to deliberately use an inappropriate use of power through words or actions to hurt another human being. And I think once we've got that in place, then we're really clear around it. One of the things that can be really tricky, in actual fact, both the bully and a victim often have an undeveloped emotional intelligence Mm. because bullies pick those more vulnerable so that they can have more success. They don't 
pick the kids who actually look like they've got their shoulders up and they've got a tribe of friends. So again, they often pick the child alone, the child who's already looking like they're not coping with the world. And that's why we really want as mates again, why we need bystanders and friends and encourage everybody to develop at least one ally. Okay, so in that moment, it's often not a good thing to stand up and to aggravate a bully because if they've really got some power, it can escalate everything into yes. an even more physical space. One of the tips I keep teaching children early on was, does your body look like it's it's in a sad and, and lonely so, or is it in a power state? So I keep on encouraging children to walk with their shoulders back and their head up because immediately that gives a message that, yeah, you're not actually... <laughs> in a vulnerable state right now. So we fake courage, fake bravery. And then the second thing is that if we can just lighten it rather than attack it, like whatever, if that's what you reckon, give a smile, have a great day and we just move away. So in other words, we hear them because they need to be heard but we don't let it bother us or we show that it's not. Mm. Then we just basically can move on. And that can really help. But if we start going back saying, you shouldn't be mean and you shouldn't say things, they come at you even more. So it's the deflect and then we find ourselves in a space of getting some protection. It kind of sounds like we're letting them get away with it, but in actual fact, that uh, they will move on to someone else, which is sad. However, that's why we want to teach all kids that, you know, a bully is a person who is wanting to be able to hurt others to feel better about themselves, but they're actually wounded and broken inside because it's a learned behaviour. And quite often it's working out where did they learn it because if it's not happening in a home environment, sometimes does with a sibling who's a bully Mm -hmm. or it's a kid on the bus who's the bully or it's somebody at the soccer game or the netball game and girls can be just as nasty as bullies. So they've learned it somewhere. And that's one of our challenges, I think, is how do we work with the bully? I'm a firm believer if we can actually have the restorative justice process. So in schools, when there is one that's really targeting a particular child, even if none of these strategies work, then we get them together and there is a process that can be done. And I absolutely, once again, it can work really brilliantly Mm -hmm. because, again, they just need to be heard. They need to know that, you know, that that definitely isn't funny. Some some bullies, boys particularly, use banter and um, teasing words kind of in jest, but no, there's a difference because it doesn't hurt when yeah. it's in jest and it does often with an intention to hurt. That's the challenge of bullying. And, of course, we've got to look at it online now because cyberbullying is enormous. I'd love to know what you think about nurture versus nature. I totally believe you. none of us are born incredibly evil. Obviously, there is a shaping of those early years. We know the fundamental five years is how we can learn to be more gentle, be more caring, have empathy. There are definitely children who have a lack of empathy. And if we see that, then we've got to work around how do we cultivate that? And again, that's why I get a guinea pig. We've got to teach some children the art of being gentle because for some, it hasn't happened usually poor attachment or trauma very early in their childhood and it hardens that capacity up and they're in fight and fight all the time because that's the only way they survive. I do know that, yeah, for nurture versus nature, there are lots of things that definitely come through. Temperament, 
So the temperament spectrum I talk about a lot is the roosters versus the lambs. And you'll know if you've got the rooster child in your house because they really have a heightened sense of their own importance. They want to go first. They're brave. They're fearless. They're loud. They don't want to sleep. They've got too much energy. They're really hard work. And the lamb, once again, often very empathetic, very gentle, often likes a lot of sleep, doesn't really need boundaries. But what we've got to do is put some lamb in the rooster and rooster in the lamb and get them towards the middle. And then we also know there's another influence that tends to be born in us where it's shaped very early on, and that's the dandelion versus the orchid. There are just some children who life challenges just but it doesn't make a lot of difference because dandelions grow anywhere. Yeah. But orchids are very sensitive with all sorts of things. And when you get the rooster orchid, oh, ooh, that's a really big challenge because they're feisty and out there and, you know, want to do stuff. But, wow, their feelings around disappointment, jealousy, um, embarrassment, oh, they can be huge. So, again, mm. they can be even harder for you in that emotional coaching of those first six to eight years of life, both girls and boys. With girls, because obviously I have one of each and I can see from an early age that for me, it seems that girls are way more complex. Being a girl myself, I also understand that and remember how I was. (laughs) Girls are very emotional. I feel that they're extremely intelligent from a very young age. With boys, I just see eh, nothing really phases them. When they're young as much, they just kind of go with the flow, a lot of them. But girls, it seems that the bitchiness comes out early. I feel like they're very wise beyond their years. How is the best way to raise a girl in this society? Oh, well, the first thing we really have to embrace is they do turn up sharper than boys. Yeah. A couple of years ahead. We know there's some brain stuff that happens in utero that... They're so much sharper on all levels and they need to be respected in that space. They can problem solve much earlier. So they often get really annoyed at us when we tell them how to do things that can actually work out for themselves. And I'm talking two and three. The emotional intensity is definitely higher and lasts longer. There's no real science around it, Sarah. And what's really sad is we haven't done a lot of research around differences in gender because for a long time, most scientists (laughs) were men. Mm. and didn't think it was an issue. So in my research for girlhood, I talked to quite a few institutions and they're now recognising there are, they're going to be much more of a focus because we assume they were all the same. Emotional intensity is more intense and lasts longer. So that's why sometimes they can also get extremely upset about something completely unpredictable mm. that really confuses parents. So the compare despair between girls Girls' self-worth is determined by how they think others like what they have on or what they're doing, whereas boys, they determine their self-worth by how they do and what they perform and then they judge themselves. So it's quite different. I've seen fat shaming in three and four-year-olds in early childhood. So that's a biggie because that's constantly going on inside. And I share a story in my seminar about little girls at a three-year-old birthday party where there was this massive meltdown when two little girls turned up with the same sparkly shoes. And I was absolutely devoted because I wanted to be the only girl with the shoes. And then there's a birthday party three weeks later, similar age, and the two girls are high-fiving and clapping and dancing because they have the same shoes. <laughs> it's so, so true. And this is what I keep reassuring to parents. It's really hard for us to stay calm in those moments because it's so damn unpredictable. Mm. The friendship dramas are so much more complex than yes. they are for boys. And we have to help 
them navigate that world. We can't just throw them out to the shoals of it because it's been happening forever. But we also have to recognise that every time they have a friendship issue that it is a learning curve towards how we're going to navigate them later in life. And we can jump in too much too soon. And I love Claire Orange's tips around friendship dramas. She said there's three levels of it and we really only need to dive into the third. And that's there's a spark. This is a bit of a spat. <laughs> there's the flame where it might last a day or two. You know, I don't want to be a friend because you don't like your dress. And then there's the fire where you have been cut from vividly for the rest of your life and you don't know why, and it's really impacting you, that's when sometimes we need to step in and help them work a way through that. And I think another key message we can teach our girls is we can do a friendship tree, lots of branches, and you can have friends at school, friends in the street, friends Mm. that are cousins, friends in dance, friends at gymnastics, friends at soccer, so that if this goes to muck, she doesn't feel like she hasn't got anywhere she belongs because the need for girls to create alliances is actually driven biologically. Yeah, because if we were in that kinship community, men are still biologically wired to go and kill the big things that are going to threaten us, right? And that's it, still biologically, protect, defend. Mm. Whereas girls, we're still biologically, the women would need to gather together in order to survive something big. You cannot do it by yourself. So we're constantly working out how to create an alliance that will protect us and so alliances is how do we do that, right? Mm. I like the colour of your dress. You can come play. I don't like yours. You're out there. Or it's those moments of, oh, and there was in the book, that was a big one where there was a four-year-olds in a study with a stuffed toy in the room and they sent the three girls in and one of the girls picked up the toy And the other two, within seconds, had turned their back on the girl holding the stuffed toy and excluded her and then proceeded to play by themselves. Mm. Four years of age, Sarah. So we are way more complex, but I think we've got to honour and respect that we've got to look at the strengths of girls. Their memories are unbelievable. Yes. Their problem-solving capacity, amazing. Their ability to tune into things around them is just unbelievably more advanced Mm. and than our little boys. So we need to not just focus on the challenges because boys have got challenges and boys have got gifts, but we really need to be able to give them a chance to be heard, Sarah. And that's what, in those big moments, gosh, I went down some rabbit holes myself writing the book because I remembered being crushed by something I'd grown up had said, or I can still remember the moment, the big feelings in my body, the Christmas before I started big school when I was given a new school bag for my main Christmas gift. I'm still pissy about that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And there's a photograph I saw of me at the christening of my youngest brother, who's four years younger than me, and I have my arms folded and the darkest look on my face. (laughs) Mum's not only made me wear a dress, she's put this bonnet on my head. And I was so cross. (laughs) So... We don't forget stuff and sometimes the little girl in us gets triggered Yes, as a woman and we get confused by it. So no wonder our partners get confused by it and that's why one of the biggest protectors is having a circle of safe female friends. That's so true. It's the buffer for life Mm. because we can share everything with them and not be judged and still be loved. When you meet them, you laugh, you cry, you nearly have a wee and then you move (laughs) on, right? I've got three very close friends. I always talk about how there's no judgment. I think that's the big thing. There's trust. The trust is with us till the day that we die. And we laugh and silly and we talk about the funniest things. But then we can be very serious 
and cry to each other and they're a phone call away. Totally. And that's how it should be. And unfortunately, the world has got nastier and the digital spaces are let the more nasty side of our personality. We've all got a shadow. Yeah. It's like the shadows kind of coming out a little more than than the, the goodness inside us. And so, yeah, it does worry me that our teenage girls that are struggling at much higher levels of self-harm and depression and anxiety disorders than ever before. And, and we know being comparing and despairing online is mm. just contributing to already a traumatic time of our life. You have a wonderful story about Tracy Spicer talking about touching on an emotion from your childhood. Oh, look, I have enormous respect for Tracy. Yeah. She kindly offered to write the forward for my book. And when I got it to have a look at it and preview it, she begins with saying I'm a national treasure. And then she went on to write about how wonderful I've been in helping her raise her children. And I was suddenly filled with the most hideous amount of dread and disgust. And I felt just awful. And I thought, no, what's going on? Oh. So I went for a walk. And it, that's how I actually find my feelings and process them, which is a little bit more like a boy partly because I've probably been conditioned. I walked and walked for me an hour or so and I finally, I finally found the memory that triggered it and that when I was about seven and I'd done a wonderful, I thought I'd done a wonderful job at an assembly doing, I think I read another one of my poems. And as I went to sit down, an elderly man leaned over to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, girly, you need to be careful you don't get too big for your boots. Mm. And the dread and the disgust and the horror of that moment just flooded my body as a 67-year-old woman. And, yeah, I was almost like at that point, I thought, how can that happen? I've done lots of therapy. <laughs> I have done so much work at letting me be okay with who I am exactly as I am. And yet there it was. And I'm okay with it now, but it just, once again, it really knocked me off my socks. Mm. We all have these wounds, don't we? I have to tell you a story that just happened this morning and I was thinking of you as I was walking away. So my son has gone to grade four camp and it's the he's only away for two nights, but it's kind of the yep. first proper camp he's been on. He's so excited. And I took him to the bus stop and we had his little bag and all the other bits and pieces and I waved him away and he got on and smiling and so excited for these two days. His bus left. I was walking up the street wearing a hoodie. I zipped the hoodie all the way up to my mouth and I started bawling my eyes out. Bawling my eyes out that even though he's my eldest, he's my baby in a sense because he's the first one to do everything. And I thought, why am I reacting like this? But it, and, and I didn't want him to see because he was so excited. But I wonder... I feel fine now, but it's just, I just always want to protect him. And you feel like because you are their protector that you always kind of need to be around them. And he's going away for two nights and I'm sure he'll have a ball, but it's a funny feeling as a parent. Oh, we're biologically wired yeah. to want to keep our, our babies safe. And I call it the biggest letting go, you know, mm. from the time that they come outside of our body, it's a fairly long breakup and yeah, it gets harder and harder. I'd love to know what is the best advice, Maggie, that you've ever been given? Oh, definitely don't sweat the small stuff. No question. Just let it go. Just save your energy for the big stuff. So I would step over piles of washing and go outside and play. And I wouldn't necessarily give my hours of my life to fold up their clothes. I put them all on a lucky dip bed, pick your clothes there on the bed. I just realised, yeah, 
There's no perfect in parenting, but that was the big. You don't sweat the small stuff. Just save your energy for the big stuff that really makes a difference. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? I'm actually okay as a human being, exactly as I am. And I'm not defined by my grades, my accolades, the size of my bottom, the size of my feet. That has taken a lifetime to get to, to realise I'm completely at peace with the human I am. And I wonder what I'm going to do when I grow up. Mm. What is a life of greatness to you? There's no question. For me, it's these little moments where I get messages, whether it's a DM or a text or an email or I get stopped in the street where a mum or a dad says to me, you changed our parenting, you've changed our lives and that's what I wanted to do. I want to be a human who came on this earth and left it in a better place and I've already done it. But that is really the gold in my life. Not only, you know, am I... I absolutely love my boys to bits and my daughter-in-laws and my children, but I wanted as a big growing up to leave the world a better place than I found it when I arrived. Mm. Maggie Dent, you are a national treasure. Thank <laughs> you so much for all the work that you've done. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Sarah, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.